Oh, welcome everybody to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. My name is Eric Nevins. I'm your host, and I'm super glad that you're here. I finally get the chance to connect, and you as well. We all are in this together with Jeremy Myers. Jeremy is a podcaster. He's a blogger and an author, and uh, he's got some cool things to share. I can't wait to hear more of his story. Jeremy, welcome to Halfway There. Oh, thank you, Eric, for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am definitely excited to make the connection. Um, I mentioned some of the things that you're you're doing. You kind of have this little uh, online empire, as I see it. So, what? Tell us a little bit about that and uh, kind of what you're doing, and then we'll go back and hear your story. How God brought you here. <laughs> I don't know about empire, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I do have my. My toes dipped in a lot of different things. Right. So you mentioned I do a blog and I have one at redeeminggod.com and then lots of other things related there uh, there as well. I do have books published, I think 11 or 12 at this point. Uh, then the podcast. Now, my podcast is a little different than yours. Um, yours is interview. Mine is uh, more, we, we look at b- uh, passages from scripture and then try to explain them in a way that help people understand them better and apply it to their lives. Um, and then I do have a, an online discipleship area as well. I think that about covers it though. Yeah. Those are the, the main areas. Yeah. I like what you do with your podcast because you'll take, you take a verse. If, if I remember right, you take one verse and you kind of dig into it. Um, and then you, you've been through several books of the Bible as, as like, far as I could tell. Yeah. So when I was a pastor, that's the way I preferred to preach through books of the Bible, one verse at a time. And it wasn't always one verse and it still isn't. Gotcha. So I did teach through like the first couple chapters of Genesis, and it was on average about one verse per episode, uh, but sometimes there were five or six uh, verses that we would look at at once. And then there were a couple places in there where we would take uh, two or three episodes to get through one verse. But yeah, that's sort of the, the, the it's, it is the one verse podcast, and that's sort of the goal and focus. Right. Okay. So that's where I got that from. But yeah, yep. that's, that's so important that um, just that way of kind of looking and digging into scripture um, in a kind of an exegetical way. So I appreciate that you, you're doing that. Yeah. Well, I find it easiest for me. <laughs> sure. I, I honestly, uh, I, I don't know how pe- uh, pastors come up with these six and eight week sermon series. I'm not very much of a topical <laughs> thinker. I'm more of a, you know, if, I know what I'm going to be preaching on next week because it's the next verse in the book. So right. easy for me. Right. Well, it's also different from a lot of the preaching and stuff that you get out there you look at the top in the category of the Christianity and iTunes, you're going to find a lot of preaching. You're going to find a lot of teaching. Well, great. Well, tell us, did you grow up in a, in a Christian home or how did you find Christ? Yes. So my father was a pastor of a church in Montana. And so I obviously grew up in a Christian home and uh, did, did all of that. I went to Awana growing up. I don't know if you're familiar with Awana at all. That's that youth program where you memorize a lot of Bible verses. And youth group, of course, I even attended a Christian school, K through 12. So, I mean, that's my background. And then somewhere early on there, uh, you know, probably when I was five or six, you know, I I do remember believing in Jesus for eternal life. And I just think part of that was just where I was at in my family and my upbringing. And so it was pretty typical as far as all of that is concerned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how then did that become personal? How did it become your own? Right. So I think I always had an interest in scripture and theology. 
even from a very young age. I remember around Christmas time, my mom asking me what I wanted for Christmas. And ever since I was seven, eight, nine, ten, it was always just books. Mm. Uh, especially, I loved C.S. Lewis. I was reading Mayor Christianity very early on. Um, and then I did a lot of journaling back then. I'm not sure why. I just enjoyed it. And uh, even in the Christian school I was part of, every day we had Bible class, and for whatever reason, it was my favorite class. So I think just very early on, I had this interest. Uh, now, like you say, a lot of it wasn't very uh, real, wasn't personal for me. I think I was doing it because I was trying to please somebody else or just get a good grade in my class or please my parents or something. And so somewhere along in there, yeah, it did become real, more of a relationship that I had with God. And I, I could communicate with him through scripture and even sense him communicating with me through the pages of scripture as well. So uh, and that's somewhere probably in high school is where it started to become more real to me and more personal. Okay. What was that experience like? What, what started to make it real? Uh, I mean, and it's okay if it wasn't like, you know, a mountaintop experience or, or something, but it doesn't have to be a specific story, but I'm wondering if you, you know, sometimes people will have like a youth pastor or somebody who invested in them or something that really started to make them go, yeah, this is for me. Yeah. I don't really, I can't think of any one thing necessarily or any, any catalyst really that, that, created a, a great transition for me. I really think it was more just a long, slow process from my youth all the way up into my teenage years and then on into college. Now, having said that, uh, there was, well, one of the early, early things, I not early, uh, later things that really made a difference for me was uh, when I was in college, a good friend of mine died in a, a, a freak hiking accident. And so, you know, that was sort of an event in my life that really made me question and wonder what I was doing, what I was living for, what I was, what my goals were. And, and so that was a big turning point in my life as well. At the time, I was attending Montana State University, and I was going to become a, a, a mechanical engineer. Uh, and so that following semester, I dropped out and I went off to Bible college. So that was a big oh, yeah. turning point in my life. Yeah. I can see that. That's interesting. Why? So you, everything else you said about growing up was, I was into the Bible. I was into theology. I like that. Then you were going to go study and be a mechanical engineer. Yeah. No, you're right. It's, it's sort of funny. You know, the other thing I love to do is tinker with machines and take things apart, put them back to, together. I really wanted to become an inventor. I, I, I've always been good at trying to figure out how things work and try to make them better, improve on them. And so I, I, that's what I went at, why I wanted to go into mechanical engineering. Now, the reason <laughs> that I told myself is that I was going to, okay, th this is, you know, my high school mentality talking here uh -huh. uh, in early college years. I was going to make some really great inventions and become a multimillionaire so that I could fund my missionary efforts overseas. Sure. Yeah, church planting, right? Yeah, As right. a millionaire. Perfect. Sounds good. Because you get the pool and, and the mission. So that's good. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the plan. And uh, and then when my friend died, uh, you know, I just realized, you know what? The real goal here, I, I had a good look at my heart and I said, you know what? Uh, I've always loved theology and scripture, teaching it to others. And so this whole mechanical engineering thing, yes, I love tinkering with machines and things, but 
that's just uh, me chasing after money. Really, that's what I thought. Mm. Uh, some days I still wonder if I was right about that, though. I, I, that that whole I don't know. It's it's interesting. I back then I had this mentality that you're only really in ministry unless you're a pastor or a missionary. Yes, I get. And that. so now I don't believe that at all. And uh, so I sometimes wonder how my life would be different if I had stuck with mechanical engineering. So yeah. it's just one of those things. No, I totally get that because I I made a similar choice. Nobody died or anything, but I was thinking I wanted to be an actor, which I'm not really that good an actor. What I what I think is always written all over my face. It doesn't matter what is act, <laughs> if I'm trying to act. But as I want, I knew I wanted to do something creative, and uh, I just real I wanted to go, but I also wanted to go to school and so or go get a degree in Bible. And I said, well, that's more meaningful. This has kind of more of an Im- eternal impact. And that's not necessarily true. I've kind of come to the same conclusion. Well, actually, if we tell good stories, that has a way of bringing the gospel into people's hearts in a different kind of way, thus the story podcast. But Absolutely. Yeah, you have a great voice for it, too, by the way. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, man, I would tell you a story about that, but this, this episode is not about me. It's about you. So <laughs> maybe I'll tell you afterwards. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, okay. So, so you've... And maybe that was youth, right? A feeling of, hey, this is really more meaningful and uh, I'm going to go and and go. So where did you go to school? So my undergraduate was at Moody Bible Institute. Okay. And that is where I met my wife, Wendy. And we got married after she she graduated, but before I did. Then following that, we went off to Denver Seminary. I was going to get my Master's of Divinity there. Uh, but after one year, I got pretty sick of school in general. And, uh, so I quit and we went up to Montana to, uh, pastor a small church up there in, in Northwest rural Montana. And let's see, we were up there for about five years. And, and then I decided, you know what? I really do need to go back and finish my master's degree. And so we went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I finished up there. All right. Well, from Mon- we three kids along the way there, three girls. Oh, there you go. That's great. That's great. Um, so that's like the evangelical, you know, round table. Yep. There. A little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, okay. So you so you decided to get your education. Um, so would you? So where did you go after that? Well, I should say, by the way, the reason I loved pastoring, I really, really did. I loved it. And I loved the people. I loved the area. Uh, Many times, even to this day, I I regret ever leaving. And so does my wife. In fact, we still keep in contact with a lot of the people from the church that we were at up there in Montana. And when my family's all there, when we go back to visit, we still go and hang out with some of them. So, so the question is, why did I leave and then go back to seminary? I mean, a lot of people go to seminary so they can become a pastor of a church. Yeah. I, I was a pastor of a church. So why, why leave something good and go back to seminary? The reason, <laughs> the reason is that I wanted to become a megachurch pastor. <laughs> so okay. I figured uh, for that I needed a seminary degree because you know you don't you don't get hired on in a, a large church unless you're unless you're you have a degree at least one. Right. So I figured okay I'm going to do this I'm going to go to seminary and uh, yeah, well <laughs> so I went to seminary and uh, this is where my life got turned upside down I don't know how much of my my backstory you might have read online but I went down there and that was sort of my goal and plan uh, and while I was there. 
I was working for a nonprofit Christian organization, a publishing company down there in the Dallas area. Um, and I loved them, what they were doing. And I still, you know, it's a wonderful organization. So what I say next, please don't, I'm not going to name them because it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, the, the point is, is, as part of my time in seminary, I was stretching my mind. It's what you do in seminary. I was reading some books that challenged, for example, seven-day creationism. Uh, I was reading some books that, uh, and these weren't books that the seminary was recommending. I was just, you know what, as long as I'm here, I might as well see what the opponents, the heretics believe, right? right. So that I can I can understand how to refute them. So I'm reading these books, and uh, lo and behold, I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to refute some of what they were saying. Uh, and then I was reading some books on like prophecy, how to interpret prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, whether or not it really refers to Jesus, these sorts of things, how to understand, you know, uh, spiritual warfare, demons, angels, that sort of thing in scripture. Okay. So I'm reading these things and I, at this time had started my blog. And so I wrote this blog post uh, called the heretic in me, and I could give you this link if you want it for your show notes. Sure. Um, because <laughs> I, I wrote this blog post saying, "Oh my, I'm getting pretty scared at some of what I'm beginning to wonder about." I'm reading these books, and it's raising lots of scary questions in my evangelical conservative mind that I'm not sure I can respond to. So I wrote this blog post, and here's the, I think it was seven things that I was questioning. Uh, wondering about, reading about that I'd never been exposed to before, right? Yeah. Okay, and I thought that was the end of it. No. Because <laughs> well, you opened the can of worms, didn't you? I did. Yeah. The CEO of the company I worked for somehow found out, he didn't read my blog, but someone who financially supported the ministry uh, did read my blog and they emailed the CEO, said, hey, do you know what Jeremy Myers wrote on his blog? Are you sure you really want him working for you? And oh, by no. the way, if you do let him continue to work for you, we are pulling our financial support. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah. So uh, guess which way he went. <laughs> I got a feeling he chose the money. Yes. Not the people. Did. No. So... Um, and that wasn't all of it. Uh, also, we were doing a conference later that year with the, I think it was uh, the Institute for Creation Research, ICR. Do you know who they are? This, uh, you know, they're pretty conservative. Ken Ham, I, I think, might yeah. be at ICR. Or, anyway, one of those creation organizations. And so one of the things I was wondering about was seven-day creationism. And so, again, they said, they found out as well somehow, and they said, look, um, I know you've invited us to come to your conference, but as long as you have a guy on staff who is not sure he believes in seven-day creationism anymore, uh, it's either him or us. So you either fire him, let, let him go, or we are withdrawing from the conference. Well, they were a big draw for this conference as well. Lots of people were coming because they were going to be at the conference. So again, it sort of came down to, and again, I, honestly, he probably did the right thing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying he did the wrong thing. Uh, now, on the other hand, there was nothing in the doctrinal statement about any of the seven things I was questioning. I told him when we had our meeting, I said, look, give me the doctrinal statement. I'll sign it in blood. <laughs> wow. Uh, because there was nothing, but he he said, "Well, no, we're going to have to let you go." And I said, um, "Anyway, so so long story short is I got let go from this this um, this organization." So I was in my last year of seminary at this time, and here I am in Texas without a job. And um, you know, the funny thing is, is is here's what happened: I lose my job at this 
well-respected Christian publishing company conference organization sort of a thing. And I started getting emails from lots of people, friends, even some family members, uh, people at my church, uh, all of the people who I'd gotten to know over the years. And they said, what was your, you know, we're praying for you that I don't quite remember how it was worded, but the, the basic line was, uh, we know you had some sort of moral failure because oh, there's no. no reason this organization would fire you unless there was a moral failure. And so I would email back and said, no, there was nothing. I promise. <laughs> I didn't do anything except for, you go read the blog post. Here it is. This was it. I was reading instead. No, no, they wouldn't fire you for that. Uh -huh. It was a moral failure. Nobody's talking about it. You know, you need to own up to this. You need to confess it so that uh, you can break free of this and, and, and be restored. Long story short, I had everybody abandon me turned their back on me. It was really, really a painful time for me. And um, uh, the only people, I remember it so vividly, my wife and I having these conversations, the only people who stuck with us, who came around, who brought us food, who helped me find a new job, the only people were our non-Christian neighbors. And it was really, really eye-opening for me. I thought, what is going on here? How come these non-Christian neighbors of mine that we've known for two years are, are acting towards me more like Jesus than all of my Christian friends and even some of my Christian family and, and everybody else. And it just, it really started to raise some difficult questions for me. So wow. um, that was a huge turning point for me. And I was listening to one of your other podcasts, and I'm sorry, I can't remember. It might have been the one with Doug Groteis, uh, but it might have been one of the others. I'm sorry, I can't remember who. But one of them said that um, one, one of the people you were interviewing, um, something about how they sort of stopped believing in God a little bit. Or, or maybe they mentioned something like uh, they became a Christian atheist or something. They realized, uh -huh. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember quite what yeah, they yeah. said, but it was basically the idea was they realized that the God they always believed in didn't actually exist. Or oh, the yeah. God they, the God, you remember what I'm talking about? It was one of your interviews. Yeah, I can't remember specifically either, but it, Dr. Grodis does talk about some stuff like that where it's like, hey, you know, you can be a Christian atheist and stop believing in God, even though I, I believe in him. He's not kind of, yeah, like I thought, but yeah, I don't remember if that was him specifically or not. But I I hear what you're saying. Um, very interesting. So did this this challenge your? Did it challenge your conception of who God was, or the way that you had constructed God through what you received in the church? Everything. Yeah, everything. At, at the, when this happened, you know, I had opened Pandora's box, and now there were no questions that were off limits for me. Uh, I started questioning if if all of my Christian friends treated me like this, then what is wrong with the church? The church shouldn't function this way. I mean, Jesus didn't intend the church to function. I don't think we're supposed to be one of the most loving organizations, accepting, caring uh, uh, organizations, groups on the planet, and and yet we, you know, we throw, we stab each other in the back. It just, I was like, what is happening? It, this can't be right. Uh, and then it made me start to question God. And I never really doubted that God existed, but but um, I, I did start, start to feel, I remember my wife having this conversation. 
and it wasn't just this. It was one thing after another for us. I, I'll tell you now, I went through some serious depression. I felt like my my the floor of my life had fallen out beneath me. The rug had been pulled out. Mm-hmm. All of my plans and dreams of mega church pastor. I mean, that was gone. <laughs> I wasn't even sure I wanted to be part of the church anymore. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a pastor. Um, and it was, I had, I started to develop some major health problems. So did my wife. Uh, our marriage was on the rocks. Um, we, we had, we had young children. I, I couldn't provide for them. We were starting to miss house payments cause I was w- without work. Um, you know, it was all sorts of things. And it just seemed like every single day brought a new problem. And I remember so clearly thinking there was a long time in my life and I went into serious, serious depression, uh, even suicidal oh, wow. uh, for some time in there. And um, <laughs> I, I went to a counselor. The counselor made things worse, made <laughs> things worse. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, we stopped that. We went to some marriage counselors. And I kid you not, we, my wife and I went to three different marriage counselors at three different uh, churches and marriage centers. And every single one of them met with us for, I don't know, it was about eight to 10 weeks, each one. And at the end of those, they finally, each one said, you know what? We just really can't help you. Oh, wow. <laughs> Your I, problems that you, you were just, you were not able to, and we were paying them. That's what I don't <laughs> understand the whole thing. It was just so bizarre. Anyway, I remember along this way thinking, uh, many, many times going to bed at night that I don't want to wake up in the morning because each day is worse than the one before. That's how I felt. I would love it if tonight I just drift off to, to, you know, I wouldn't wake up in the morning because tomorrow I just dread it. I dread what tomorrow is going to bring for me. Um, and I remember thinking often in there, you know, we had three daughters at the time. My wife and I would have this conversation. What is up with God? Neither one of us would treat our children this way. Why is God treating us this way? Yeah, It doesn't yeah. make any sense. And so, yeah, we began to question the goodness of God. Uh, whether God was actually involved, I mean, in, in this life at all, there was a time in there where I thought maybe maybe this whole deism thing is correct, you know, this divine watchmaker thing where God started things and then he just went off and now we're up to left our own devices to muddle through life as best we can. I struggled with that for a while. It was It was a really trying time. And yeah, basically everything was up in the air. I knew nothing for sure. Wow, okay. So, yeah, well, that sounds like it definitely... A dark night of the soul, if I've ever, ever heard one, that, you, you know, you kind of lost everything. And it's interesting. It's one thing to lose physical possessions and to have those and then to lose relationships. But even, you know, to lose your, um, you know, when you lose the foundation of your worldview, that is actually, I think, harder than the other things, right? You can, you know, I don't know how you felt about it, but that can be really tough. Yeah, for for sometimes in well, I, I will say this: it's much much harder to lose a child or a spouse or a loved one. Sure, yeah, I'm sure you're right. And we you're didn't. Right. Well, I'll, I will say we we didn't experience that, although we sort of did. One of the other things we were doing at this time is trying to adopt a girl from Guatemala, uh, and uh, we went through the entire process. This was right before I lost my job, and we had paid them. I don't, you know, Guatemala international adoption is very expensive, so we didn't have any money. We were poor seminary students, so. Um, we took out loans and everything, which is probably not something you should do for an adoption. Anyway, um, we were maybe, I don't know, one or two months away from bringing her home. And uh, we had named her, we had clothes, we had a room, everything. Basically, she's our daughter. We just need to go down there and pick her up. Uh, and Guatemala shut down adoption, so we couldn't. 
So that happened there as well. And so even to this day, my wife and I think about, you know, we don't know what happened to our daughter. Yeah. So she's down there. Yeah. Wow. So you, again, it's not the same as it's not quite the same as someone who had given birth to a a, a child. I, I would never take that away from somebody that that's happened to them. Um, but, uh, it, it felt, it felt again, another thing like, God, why? Right. Right. Well, it was another question to throw on the pile. Right. Right. Yes. A- another one to go, Hey, I don't understand why this is happening and what, you know, what God's doing or where he is, you know, like you said, you kind of were questioning his whole love for you. Right. Which is sort of the central question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I meant by the kind of, you know, like you said, rug being pulled out from under you, you know. And I hope I wasn't insensitive in what I, the way I phrased that. Oh, Other, no, 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 okay. not at all. Not at all. Yeah, good. Um, wow, well, so that was, that was a heavy time for you. How, how do you, uh, how did you start to reconcile some of those things and, you know, and move to a different, a different place or kind of start to rebuild those underpinnings. It all began honestly. And I, I don't know exactly where most of your listeners are. So I'm just going to come out and say this, um, let the chips fall where they may. It all began with us leaving church. Mm. That was the first thing. Uh, we, we, from the outside, you know what, I, I, should, I should rephrase that. From the outside perspective, from the outside observers, from a church-going Christian's perspective, we left church. We gave it all up. Uh, at, at, I wanted nothing more to do with church after that event, and um, we stopped attending a church. We, for most of my life, I, I read through the Bible you know, a couple times every year. Uh, I stopped reading the Bible. I, we, we stopped praying. It seemed to us, my wife and I, it seemed to us that the only prayer, like when, we, when um, it seemed like anything we prayed for, we would get the opposite of what happened. Wow. Of what we prayed for. So, you know, if, if we were praying for, we were praying for our daughter from Guatemala and we didn't get it. I was praying for a job and we didn't get it. You know, so um, we, we said, you know what, the safest thing for us is just to stop praying uh, because then maybe some good things will come our way. I don't know. Uh, but, um, wow. so we stopped attending church and we, we stopped doing everything that, uh, you know, good Christian people did. Now we didn't go off the deep end, you know, we, we didn't, um, yeah, we're not, we're not pagans here. We just, we just decided to stop doing all of that stuff. Sunday morning, you know, Wednesday night, all of that, and even the daily devotions, all that stuff. We just stopped. And honestly, uh, where we were at at the time, looking back now, it was one of the best things we could have done. It was a, de- a, a detox mm-hmm. period for us. And in that process, we realized, we came to understand that Jesus never left us. He was with us. And when we stopped depending on that Sunday morning experience for worship, you know, for someone else to lead us in music, for someone else to teach us from scripture, for someone else to tell us what to pray for. Um, 
I don't know, Jesus became more real to us in that period than he's ever been before. Now, it was a long period, uh, I would say five to seven years. Um, but uh, it was a real time of uh, spiritual detox for us. It really was. And I would say that now, uh, it, looking back, what we realized is we never left the church. We just entered into a different experience of church um, that we had never experienced before. And we have, we, we have, I would say, a better relationship with Jesus and a better understanding of God now than we ever had before through all of this. And we have better relationships as well. Uh, we have really, really good friends, um, unlike any we've ever had in the church before. I'm not saying you can't have good friends in church. You can. Um, but for us, the friends we have now are, are unlike anything we ever had in the church. And these friends that we have, I would consider, I don't know that they would consider themselves Christians, but I do. And the reason they don't is because they also were really, really hurt by the church. Mm. So somewhere in their life, they, they did turn their back on it completely and vowed to never go back and also vowed that they didn't want to have anything to do with God. And that, you know, they went, they went that direction. Um, but we've been able to come into their life over the last couple of, year, couple of years and just encourage them and say, look, uh, even though you might have not attended church in the last 20 years and you don't want to have anything to do with God, he, he still loves you and he's still there and he hasn't abandoned you. So anyway, I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, but. yeah. Yeah, well, it's fascinating that, uh, so you had to kind of leave, I guess it's called the institutional church, right? Um, in order to find a spiritual life with Christ. Yeah, no, that's right. And that, I mean, that, again, it didn't endear us to everybody who thought we had had a moral failure (laughs) because all of them just saw this as confirmation. Oh yeah. See, they did have a moral failure and now he hasn't confessed of it. And now he's abandoned God, abandoned church. He's a backslidden carnal Christian um, you know, throwing off all accountability and wise spiritual friends and all of that. So, um, but I don't know. It, it, um, it was the beginning for us and, and it's just been a continuing journey from there. So yeah, leaving the institutional church. Um, but and I would encourage, you know, it's, it's, it, for us, our experience now is that it's, it's, even though we might've left that, we didn't leave church. It's right. been a, a different experience of church for us. Yeah. And, you know, I've, uh, we've talked to um, non-institutional church people before. Uh, well, I think I've had a number of people that you and I probably both know, like Richard Jacobson and Keith Giles and uh, Steve Sims comes to mind, Henry Hahn. So had a bunch of those guys uh, on and, you know, you guys can find those in the show notes. Uh, Go go back through. I think they're all they're all in there somewhere. So uh we get that the church is not necessarily what happens on Sunday morning or that gathering. The church is the people of God, not just here, uh, but uh but all over the, the world and in all times. So right. Yeah. No, that's good. I think lots of more people are starting to realize that as well. Yeah, which I think is really good, but I can totally see how that would be damaging if you come to that conclusion and you're 
you know, especially in a place like Dallas, right? I mean, sure, that's the Bible Belt Central right there. So I'm, I can see where that's a different, uh, not to impugn all Dallas residents who are Christians, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that, that uh, you know, I can see where that would be more of a fundamentalist kind of understanding of the world if you don't conform to us. For sure. Yeah. So tell us a little, I want to hear a little more about your kind of experience of Christ during that time when, when he was, when you were discovering that you know, Christ hasn't left us. What was that? How did you know that? Yeah. So our experience of Jesus during this time, it, again, it was a long process, a long time of trying to answer some of these questions we had we had asked. And I think that as we started asking some of these questions about church and then finding answers from them, we began to find Jesus in our friends outside of church, find Jesus in places that we never expected to find with, you know, our non-Christian neighbors or non-Christian friends or even at uh, my place of work or um, even in movies and music that, secular movies and music. It's amazing to me that sometimes, you know, quote-unquote secular movies and secular music can have such amazing spiritual themes that for the eyes that are, you know, looking for it and the ears that are looking to hear it, uh, point people straight to Jesus. Oh, yeah. It's shocking. To me. So uh, just all of these places where Jesus just seemed to be popping up left and right and over and over in the, the strangest mm. of places that you never expected them to be, and it, it made us realize, oh, you know what? Jesus is everywhere. He's not just in that Sunday morning church service or only when I have my Bible open on my lap or only when I'm listening to Christian music on the radio. Right. He's yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. You know, John Eldridge tells a story in one of his books about finding hearts all over the place for, for a while. And uh, he shares one about fishing and he was, you know, here in Colorado and finding, he finds this rock, you know, that was like, he was just meditating and praying as he was fishing and he finds this heart shaped rock. You, maybe you've heard that one, but like, ah, you know, yeah, he is everywhere and he really does love me. And I, I hear that in some of your story. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I have not heard that story, but everywhere we go, we pick up heart rocks. I don't know why we, really? in our kitchen, I could take you in there right now. We have a good four foot section of our counter that's just filled with heart rocks. Oh, that's we, awesome. We pick them up and bring them home and stick them there on the counter. It's something my girls love to do. But but yeah, no, heart rocks are everywhere. What and my know? wife used to call it kisses from God, these little things yeah. that we would just happen throughout your day. That's basically God saying, hey, I love you. I'm here with you. I'm, I'm watching out for you. I love so, that. I cannot believe that you are that you guys are picking up heart rock. I saw you smiling at me when I was telling a story about John Eldridge about heart rocks and I'm going, Oh, he must, he knows a story. And you're like, no, we, we do that. And I thought, wow. That is, that is really, you know, I don't know why I tell that story, but that's, I guess it was God. So well, it's my daughters. Yeah. I don't know if all daughters are that way, but, but girls tend to see hearts everywhere. So. <laughs> Amen. So that's good. I'd like to know a little more about your theological transition because uh, that sounds like it was pretty profound for you and how you saw God, not just personally, but in your theology. So how, how would that turn out? Wow. Uh, okay. So yeah. it's a small a question. Of, yeah. Just a small question. <laughs> um, 
you know, I'm still in, I'm still, obviously we're all still in transition right. on all of this, still in process. So uh, again, though, a lot of it started with church. And by the way, this is where all my books come from. I don't know how other authors do it, but I tend to think best by writing. And uh, initially that was on my blog. And then honestly, a lot of my blog posts, I just turned into books, you know, reformat and stuff. And so as I'm thinking, try to think through issues and questions and subjects and, and things and I, I'm, I'm questioning in my own life or about scripture, theology or whatever, I write about it on my blog or I write a book about it and that helps me think it through. And then I publish it to try to help other people who might be having similar questions. Not saying I have all the answers, but what I'm saying is, hey, you know, you and I have similar questions and here is my struggle with this question and here's sort of what I came to. It might help you, might not. Uh, but if you read the book, it might help you decide. So um, I do have a lot of books on my whole struggle with church and my transitions about how I understand church and all of that. And then somewhere along the way with this whole seeing Jesus everywhere, this was a big thing for me because I had always struggled, and I think a lot of people do, with how to understand this, all the violence of God all over the place in the Bible. And then also all of the you know, red and tooth and claw, all the blood and violence and natural catastrophes and things that happen in our own lives. And then even from my own life, you know, just this whole thing I went through with God, how come you're acting this way? How come you're treating me this way? You know, I wouldn't treat my own children this way. Why are you treating me this way? Don't you love me? Those sorts of questions. Uh, and they're all sort of wrapped up together in this idea of what is God like? Uh, and, and so when my wife and I, especially me, uh, she led the way it, on this, by the way, <laughs> I was five or six years behind her. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So it, when we started to see Jesus everywhere, uh, it, it made me begin to think that, you know, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus himself said this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that Jesus reveals God to us. Yeah. Uh, even Paul writes this, you know, in, in Colossians, the author of Hebrews writes this, that uh, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and all these sorts of things. So uh, it's just this whole process, I started to try and rethink God through the lens of Jesus. And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't the first one to do this, obviously. Lots of other authors have done this, and I was just sort of late to the party or learning off of them. You know, Greg Boyd, Brian Zond, some of these others um, ha have helped me along the way as well in some of what they've written and taught. Um, so, so that was a big theological shift for me, though, when I realized that um, I, I don't have two different, you know, one God who's angry and violent, and then one who's loving and forgiving. Uh, but instead, Jesus reveals to us what God is like. And uh, that made a major shift in my theology and my thinking and how I viewed life and, and a bunch of other things as well. I don't know if that answered your question. No, but yeah, that answers my question. That's a huge theological point. To come to and here, the interesting thing to me because I I'm like many of us who had a Calvinist phase in college, right? You kind of when you're thinking using your brain that much, it gets cramps and you become a Calvinist. But it's uh you know I think it's it's interesting to have that when you have that that insight that no Jesus is what God is like, and you start to like you're saying interpret Scripture in that way. Uh, for me, it was more, I started interpreting scripture as, uh, my background's in spiritual formation. That's why we do this, and I, I want to hear how you were shaped. But I started to go, well, I'm going to read the Bible as, how does God 
what what is this telling me about him? You know, not instead of just what is this telling me about what I should do, which I think mm. is a whole different way of looking at it. So I can relate to that quite a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, the Bible's not primarily there as a book to tell us what to do. Yeah, isn't but that's a that's a pretty huge statement, right? Like that's there are there are entire systems of of uh whatever you want to call it. I don't know, like denominations, whole denominations and seminaries and schools and books and whatever that are committed to telling you quite the opposite. No, you're right. Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, then when you write, approach it instead, as you said, uh, trying to learn about God and and what He thinks about you, or you know, just His His love for you, it's a completely different way of reading Scripture, and it opens up your mind and your 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 way of thinking to a whole different way of viewing life as well. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned your books. Your I linked up your page on your blog um, with all of your books there because you've got a bunch. I didn't realize you'd written that many, um, including nothing but the blood of Jesus, talking about the well, Jesus obviously, but then also the atonement of God. And you recommended that to me. I haven't I haven't checked it out yet. I'm I started with N.T. Wright the the uh, day the uh, what's it called the day the, the revolution began. Yeah, that's it. You can't go wrong with N.T. Wright. No, you can't. That's okay. <laughs> Actually, I've never read much of him, which I I decided I needed to fix that. So, yeah. But uh, I'll link that up in the show notes. So, friends, you guys can go and, and check that out there. Okay, uh, thank you. No, yeah. Yeah, both of those look at the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, sort of, and just how they how the crucifixion informs our theology and our view on life and, and also our understanding of God. Yeah. Uh, where where did you come down on that? Which part? The the well, the atonement. I was thinking specifically on the atonement. Okay, so I believe, and and if you're quite for if any of your listeners who want to know more about my view on the atonement, that is in the atonement of God. Um, now, as one critical review on Amazon pointed out, I do a horrible job summarizing the various views on the atonement and uh, do an even worse job defending my own view. Uh, but that's because that's not what the book was actually about. It's really sure. only the first 70, bo- 70 pages of the book that talk about the atonement. So it's more of a summary. It's intended to be just a summary. So sure. anyway, whatever. Uh, but my view is uh, I-, I do hold to the Christus Victor view or the nonviolent view of the atonement where God did not kill Jesus. Um, Jesus went to the cross of his own will and not to purchase forgiveness. You know, it's not like Jesus had to die in order for God to forgive us or in order for God to love us. Once again, we don't have a good cop, bad cop routine Mm. going on between God uh, and Jesus, you know, for us poor sinners, Um, Jesus reveals what God is like. And Jesus went to the cross willingly and uh, it was all part of God's perfect plan, divine plan to reveal himself to us, that he is a suffering God who suffers with us and for us and, and on our behalf uh, in life. Um, and he's always loved us and always forgiven us. So, so I, I, do, I do sort of present that idea in, in the book, The Atonement of God. And then after I present that basic view, I give 10 ways this view of God, this view of Jesus changes our life in theology. So I talk about if you accept this view of 
and then by the way, obviously my presentation isn't complete. So you have to go read other books that present that view better. But anyway, once you do, then it changes how you read scripture. It changes how you view God. It changes how you view other people. It changes how you understand yourself and what sin is and, and where forgiveness comes from. I mean, um, if God, if Jesus didn't, didn't buy forgiveness from us, purchase forgiveness for us from God through his shed blood on the cross, then that means that God has always forgiven us. And, uh, you know, that, that blood sacrifice isn't needed for God to forgive us. Of course, that raises a whole bunch yeah. of other questions. Then why did Jesus have to die? And, um, you know, all sorts of things. But anyway, it's all in there. And then the follow-up book, uh, again, one, one person wrote a critical review saying that uh, the atonement for God it doesn't, doesn't explain a reason for the crucifixion. So I wrote nothing but the blood of Jesus as a way to explain the crucifixion. And uh, so that's what that book is about. They're, they are related, related in theme and content, but different gotcha. sort of approaches. You mentioned that that changes our life. It changes the way we see God. How, how does it change the way that we interact with other people? Right. There's so many ways, uh, just a, a couple that come to the top of my head. If we realize that God has always loved and forgiven us unconditionally, just because that's who God is, then that inspires us to do the same for other people. Um, it, you know, if we feel like God had conditions before he could forgive us, then, you know, it sort of justifies our, well, I'm not going to forgive you until you confess and repent and change your ways. Then I'll think about forgiving you. And we say, well, that's what God did. But if God didn't do that, then we don't have a right to do that either. And we are, we are called to love and forgive the same way he did. Now, uh, this might still mean you have a broken relationship with that person. And that's when confession and repentance and, you know, reparations and things like that do come into play to fix that broken relationship. And that's the same way it is with God. Uh, but, um, you know, just to restore communication, you can have, for example, you know, a, a, an estranged parent, maybe that you haven't talked to for five years or 10 years, your relationship with them is still there. Uh, you're still their son or whatever. They're still your parent, but your fellowship is broken. Right. So anyway, uh, that's how I explain all that. The, the confession and repentance, it helps restore that the lines of communication. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it's the same way in our human relationships. Anyway, so that's one way. Also, in Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, I talk about scapegoating a lot and how Jesus became a scapegoat on the cross. And there's a long explanation in the book on how, that, how we see that. And what that does for us is it helps us see how we scapegoat other people and other people groups, maybe minority groups or people who are different from us or other religious groups or people from other countries or people of different political persuasions or whatever it might be. And then when anything bad happens in life or in culture or in society, we point the finger at them and we lay all the blame on them and we say they're guilty, they did it, they're responsible. And, and then we work to get them kicked out of society or something like that. Uh, and again, it, it just sort of helps us watch out that we don't do that for other people. Uh, and, and we see that Jesus is exposing this and revealing this because it was done to him on the cross. Yeah. Yeah, I think about that often about, hey, if he could empty himself 
and go to the cross completely undeserved, I don't have to get everything that I think I deserve. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And I kind of hate that sometimes, but other times I go, yeah, all right, Lord, I can do that. You know, that's, that's good. Right. Of course. Yeah. Laying down yourself, uh, sacrificing your dreams and goals, plans, desires for other people that you want to serve. That's definitely part of it as well, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. Jeremy, I hope that this is just the beginning of a conversation and uh, I hope that we get a chance to talk a lot more in the future. And uh, I really appreciate everything that uh, you've published and wrestled with and share with us. I mean, you, you went to to write into your dark night of the soul. And I appreciate that so much because it's uh, those times are hard, but uh, I think we can see that God was really faithful uh, to you to bring you to a, a different and more freeing understanding of who he is. And uh, you're sharing that with everybody. I appreciate that as well. Yeah, no, God is faithful for sure. That's the exciting thing coming out of all this. There was that time in there where I wasn't so sure about that, but if any of your listeners are wondering, just know while you're going through that pain and that darkness and that time where it feels like God is absent, your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, that you don't hear him, you're not sure that he hears you, he's there, uh, he's with you. And, and go through it, walk through that dark night, valley of the shadow of death, because on the other side is a much more beautiful understanding of God and a much closer relationship with him than you ever thought you could have. Amen. To have. So, um, yeah. It, that's that's really exciting, and that's why I love what you're doing on this podcast. Because I think in in the episodes I've listened to, that has come out over and over and over again. It's a common experience. Absolutely. In fact, that was exactly my goal. I it felt like a lot of our testimonies just said, "Oh, I found Christ, and then I'm I'm good now. I'm perfect. I'm fine." <laughs> it doesn't happen, does it? That's not the way this works at all. And so, <laughs> my goal is to normalize the stuff that we go through as as Christians and. That's why it's the, uh, you know, honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience, what it's really like. So absolutely, I appreciate you sharing your experience. Friends, you can find, I think the best way to go and find more from Jeremy is redeeminggod.com. Um, I'll have links in the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com. So you can totally get that there as usual. And um, I hope that you will connect with Jeremy, check out his podcast and uh, his blog and his books. Uh, Jeremy, thanks again for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Friends, keep the faith. Keep the faith.